Welcome back to Polite Politics. Noah Niederhofer here with Jenny Tayer and Dan Karish. Episode 12 of the podcast, Coronavirus, obviously still the big story and will continue to be for months and months. But we want to talk about some of the ways that coronavirus is affecting the political campaign for 2020 and want to talk about the national deficit and how this is really an issue that you know, we continue to throw money at literally, but it's not something that we're really solving. So want to try to get into some of those issues today. But first, want to welcome in again, Jenny Tayer and Jan Karish. Jenny, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, things are getting better in Texas, I think. Um, we had some really uh, hopeful numbers come out this week. We had a few consecutive days in um, some parts of the state where there were no deaths. Um, from the virus. So it's um, it's a bright spot in the country right now. I'm certainly glad to hear that. Dan Karish, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. You know, this week we had a real taste of what life outside of coronavirus was like with the NFL draft. So being able to watch that and still see some some semblance of normalcy in what life was like both before and, you know, a reminder that we have football season, which besides baseball is America's pastime. We have that to look forward to in the coming months, I think, is definitely an uplifting uh, turn of events. Absolutely right. We had the WNBA draft. Then we had, you know, uh, the last dance, you know, what uh, ESPN has been putting on with the Michael Jordan Bulls in 98, which has been kind of the huge talk of a lot of social media. It's definitely gotten a lot of attention. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the NFL draft, which is one of those really great things where you get to see, you know, young men, just as with the WNBA draft, you know, these young men and women have worked so hard for so much of their lives to achieve their dreams of becoming pro athletes. And so to see that kind of the fruition of those goals is is really, really nice to see. I want to talk about the national deficit. We are just throwing so much money right now at this coronavirus situation where you have, you know, the Secretary uh, of the Treasury, uh, Mnuchin, is, you know, I think we're two or three trillion dollars in, I think, at this point. And he said that I believe he was talking with uh, Chris Wallace that he said, if we need to spend more money, we'll spend more money. And so it seems like the money is no longer an object here. And Jenny, I want to start with you. Does politically this change the way that we see conservatives or Republicans who, you know, back in the Tea Party days really railed against government spending and really tried to focus on bringing down the national deficit? Does that kind of go out the window here just because of the unprecedented situation that we find ourselves in? Well, I don't think that um, spending is something that's unusual for the Trump presidency. Like this has been, um, you know, a different kind of spending um, from a conservative side that we've seen. And um, that's not really anything different, although right now it's an unprecedented uh, time and we're spending a lot more in a shorter period of time. I do think that the problem here is that we are allocating so much money in such a broad scope um, because now we're seeing after I think it's four bills, four stimulus bills that there's money being poorly spent. Um, you know, we just saw that this week with Shake Shack. Um, with big companies that are getting the small business loans um, and funding from the CARES Act, that's really concerning. And even 
universities that are, um, quote, feeding at the public trough, which is something that a congressman recently told me, um, is that these universities receive so much money from the CARES Act and um, have immense, immense endowments, like the University of Texas, which is the third largest endowment in the country um, under Harvard and Yale, with $38 billion, received money from the CARES Act. So I'm worried that the money that we're giving out isn't going to the people that need it the most. Um, even states and local governments limiting who can receive unemployment benefits, I'm not sure we're looking at the right problems and giving that the most amount of money or attention. We're spending a lot, but it's not going to the right places, it seems. So smart spending certainly makes a lot of sense. Dan, I want to move over to you and talking about how, you know, Jenny's definitely right. The, pre the Trump administration has not shied away from spending. And is it really just a, a line that a lot of these campaigns say that, you know, at least from Republican sides or, or other sides where they say, you know what, if you put us in power, we will rein in the deficit? Because as we've seen over time, Certainly, it seems, you know, some things, as we've seen with President George W. Bush with two wars and different things like that in the recession, there was a lot of, of spending that just was unforeseen. They could not have planned for that. But it seems like every government, every administration in place, you know, says the right things. And when push comes to shove, they then decide to spend even more money and keep raising the deficit. Do you think that there is any serious action being taken or even considered on the Hill right now to address this problem? You know, I consider myself among those very concerned with a looming fiscal crisis and with the, the deficit and the continued spending that we're seeing from the federal government. We're, we're staring at the face of multiple trillions of dollars of uh, budget deficits in perpetuity. We don't really have an end of when higher entitlement spendings are, are going to stop. But I think in this particular case, the focus on the federal fiscal deficit is a little misplaced. I think where we need to kind of reshape our focus is more toward the state uh, budgets and the state budget deficits, where, you know, it's the states that have oversight over schools, over hospitals. They've The only real way that states can uh, generate revenue is through incomes and sales tax, whereas the government, the federal government can print money as well as other tax revenue streams, and states just don't have those those types of options. I think that um, whether it's members of Congress um, or whether it's state legislatures or governors, I think they need to first prioritize addressing state budgets. Where you look six months ago, many of them were optimistic. Many governors were optimistic about the, sta the status of their budgets. Now, not so much. I think that needs to be addressed first and then uh, take another crack at trying to tamp down uh, all of the entitlement spending that we have right now. So, Dan, going off of that, what you said about looking big picture and down the road, what are the, the consequences if we don't take steps to reduce the deficit, to reduce the national debt, and to enact those reforms that you were talking about when it comes to entitlement spending and other just reducing spending across the board in different ways that's, that's smart and will help pare down this national debt? You know, so I think 
Despite the contours of the U.S. fiscal picture coming out of the coronavirus pandemic, the United States remains very attractive for foreign investors and for innovation. You know, Warren Buffett once said something along the lines of, you can never go wrong betting in favor of the United States. And while I think that that may be a little too optimistic, the United States still holds many competitive advantages over other countries, including China, Japan, India, and the European Union. You know, especially compared to China, we have significant advantages in the rule of law and wealth accumulation, strong capital markets, natural resources, uh, and maybe most importantly, we're a place where people really want to live. The next two decades or so will, in almost every aspect, be a U.S. versus China battle royale. But that's a little too theoretical and maybe too long-term focused, I think, for the task at hand. Right now, I think the priority should be on the war that we are facing, both with COVID-19 and the economy, and providing help to the states and to ensure that hospitals and schools are funded and the, the employees, the nurses, the doctors, the teachers are paid. That's really interesting. So you're talking about China, Dan, there. I want to move on to strategy politically, Jenny. Most Americans in the polling find China to be responsible for this coronavirus. And I want to ask you about the strategy that the president is taking in his re-election campaign. There seem to be two differing points of view in the White House right now. One is to kind of take a scorched earth approach against Biden, try to tie him to China or just go all out in terms of attacking him and drawing him down in terms of public opinion. And the other one is to try to elevate the president and try to have people view positively the different things and the way that he's handling this coronavirus pandemic. Jenny, what do you think of the administration's decisions so far to go with the the latter of those two, which is to try to elevate his performance? And do you believe that they should reverse course, or do you think that this is what they should be doing, is kind of trying to promote the president's job performance as opposed to going scorched earth against Biden? You know, I think they're doing a little bit of both. Um, when it comes to uh, showing the accomplishments of the Trump response to the coronavirus, they the campaign has created a comprehensive timeline of every decisive action the president has taken. Um, and so they're very in tune with that, and they're promoting that as part of the campaign um, to voters. And when it comes to Biden, yes, they are uh, showing Biden and um, his relationship over the years with China, which is very concerning, um, especially his son, Hunter Biden, who sat on the board of a Chinese company. It's interesting. It's, a, it's an interesting relationship. And I think that Trump and his presidency have been very keen on foreign policy and making sure that our money, I think this is his big thing, is that our money is invested in the right places and isn't being misused. So I think right now the tactic in going after China from the Trump administration is mostly seeing our investments into the World Health Organization, which Trump calls China-centric. And we're seeing that now because there's kind of this battle with the funding. You know, we're pausing our funding uh, to the organization to investigate, you know, is it spent in the best way possible? And now China is pledging even more money to the WHO. So it's, it's telling of this kind of battle that's happening. Right, but the U.S. didn't need to see ground in that battle. I think there's certainly an argument to be to be made that the WHO should be more independent than it is. But as an organization that does rely on funding 
from many different nations, they obviously do have to kind of appease many different countries. And by the U.S. saying, well, we're going to back away, they're allowing China to take more control and have more influence in these organizations. And so I, I want to focus more on, on specifically the tactics because when you, when you talk about the, the viewpoint of the way that the public views you know, Vice President Biden versus the public views President Trump, do you think that the, the numbers as they are kind of quote-unquote are baked in on Trump and that the people that are going to love him are going to love him regardless? And this, you know, what do you think is the best course of action? Do you think they should continue doing both what you're saying in terms of trying to link the vice president to China or saying this is why I am better or this is the mistakes that Biden have made? Or do you think it, it should be about I am the right person to lead us through this pandemic? You know, I don't know how it's playing out in the overall polls. I haven't had a chance to take a look. Um, But, you know, I think that the strategy from the campaign's perspective is is effective from what I've seen. And, um, you know, I'm hearing now that um, in, in certain reports that the campaign is gearing up to have a an online rally. So that'll be interesting because right, Trump's really gotten his base uh, mobilized by having these rallies and actually going out to middle America and, and swing states and, and communities that, um, you know, are kind of the forgotten man of America, which is how he won in 2016. And um, so there, that's going to be still very important and they're going to have to figure out a way to do that during a pandemic. And so we'll see how that plays out um, if they actually do like an online rally. I think it's an interesting idea, certainly. It's a great way to engage his his followers and supporters. I think for him, his rallies, Dan Karish, I, I feel like were like water to a fish. You know, he needed that, you know, in a sense, the adulation, but it was also a great way for him to connect and touch people in those battleground states in those key areas to again as jenny said mobilize support now we're looking at some of these different swing states and in places like florida and pennsylvania and michigan the president is trailing by double digits and so you know whether or not that's based on the economic pain that people are feeling and whether or not they will again attach that to him i'm sure hillary clinton at this point was also probably had very healthy leads in some of those states as well, and we saw how that all turned out for her. But in your opinion, Dan Karish, do you think with some of these briefings, you know, particularly some of the things that we've seen with the president and his comments about disinfectant and light and potentially, you know, putting it inside the body and things like that, do you think that perhaps Trump is working against himself in that way, that he's, he is, we're, we're getting too much Trump right now, and maybe less is more for the president? You know, Trump fancies himself, and he very much is a wartime president. And when you think of uh, when the United States has been at war, the country has always demanded, and frankly, they deserve seeing the president and hearing from the president on a daily or almost daily basis. And that's exactly what uh, President Trump is doing right now with these daily press briefings. He's always been a Donald Trump has always been a tremendous marketer, and we see that back to his reality TV. Um, star days. And I think those are some of the skills he has that Brad Parscale and the Trump re-election campaign is really trying to play up and reinforce, that they're able to use these press briefings as proxies 
for the the rallies in you know the midwestern and some of the southern states that he isn't able to conduct right now i think there's other ways that he can um defer more to experts and there's other ways to shift the focus of these press conferences less from an attack on democrats less from an attack on the media to something that is demonstrating his leadership ability because he still is a, a expert at marketing at least marketing himself um and I think that the the direction that the press conferences lately have taken have been more uh, rally-focused, more attacking his opponents than actually constructive for the country. Certainly. And Jenny, you know, just kind of the same question. Do you think that maybe we're getting a little a little Trump overload right now and, and, and maybe this is a really smart strategy to, to have him perhaps not overexpose himself in terms of, of media? While Dan said, obviously, he is an incredible job of – marketing and you know making news and and rallying support do you think that it's good for him to take uh just a little a little while off and then kind of maybe come back uh you know once things have died down a little bit so this is a big question and i think it really is more of what has mainstream media's role been in this because we've heard this argument um for both sides you know we should have less trump we should have more trump we should you know, Trump's not going to be, if Trump's not there, there are questions, what is he doing? You know, it's not going to be, people are going to be upset either way, including the media. And there's, it's going to invite speculation. Um, and why would people not want the president um, to not be there? I mean, I, that is a very important thing that he's there. And that's something um, that he's been consistent with. Um, we need him to inform us, and we also need to get an inside look as as to what he's, um, what questions he's asking, what what um, what is he hearing from experts. He has insight into this pandemic, and he's the ultimate decision maker on a lot of these um, big issues. So I'm concerned that this is just part of the mainstream media response. You know, um, the other day I missed the press briefing, so I was kind of skimming through it, and then I was looking at the different reports that came out. All I saw, all I saw was about the uh, disinfectant UV light debate. Um, of course, I don't think that those statements should have been made. And, and I want to get back to you because you raised several good points about how the press in some ways is trying to have it a little bit both ways, where they say you know, are we getting too much of the president? But if the president's not there, it'd be like, hey, where's the president? So I think in that sense, you're, you're definitely right, Jenny, you know, but they need to toe the line between should the president be out there for, you know, an hour and a half for kind of a, a press conference that just kind of goes, you know, and rambles on versus kind of a more structured thing where the president kind of gives, you know, a very, you know, more traditional maybe opening statement and then kind of hands the baton off to some of the medical advisors and then takes questions at the end versus the president just going off and saying things about disinfectants and, and UV light and all these other things, which have no kind of background because it seems like he's he's suggesting these things to people. And obviously, that's what a lot of the media are going to take out of this. And it is a real problem because Maryland's emergency services had a hundred people call that line to the point where Clorox, I think, put Lysol. They they put out public statements saying do not do this, and people could take those things the wrong way. People calling the emergency line asking if it was okay to put disinfectant inside their bodies to the point where Maryland's emergency services had to tweet out, "Do not under any circumstances do this." And we have to think if a hundred people called the the hotline. 
how many more people thought about it or are thinking about doing it or possibly even did it and did not call. So I think it certainly is important to report on what the president says because what the president says, as we know, influences a lot of people. Right. And, um, you know, I think it's also, it's something crazy because it's the outrage from this has been so much more um, widespread and it's been louder than the misinformation from, um, you know, just ruthless and terrible regimes abroad. I have heard silence from them when it comes to the Iranian theocratic fundamentalist regime saying that their people should drink industrial alcohol, directly telling their people that it would be a preventative measure against the coronavirus, a proven preventative measure. They were touting this narrative and hundreds of people died because of that. I think there's even more incredible misinformation and disinformation campaigns going on around the world that are egregious human rights abuses. While that is certainly true that there are human rights abuses going around the world, and you know, I don't, I don't think that has necessarily, I don't think that has a lot to do with whether the president should be more or less present at the press conference. I think that's that's a whole separate issue of, of what the media covers. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole thing about what the, the media covers and you know how much time we have in the day and what they choose to devote resources to. And certainly, you know, we should continue to keep an eye and and talk about some of those things that you know, as you pointed out, you know, things that Iran are doing or that you know China is doing, or some of the success stories to come out of places perhaps like a Germany, which is doing a very good job, and Italy is is Spain are starting to to slowly reopen their economies. So you know, want to try to obviously make sure that there's time in the day, but the president is overwhelming the force of news, and that's what a lot of people tune into. And media at the end of the day is is while, you know, it's important, obviously, for, for us and I'm a journalist through and through, you know, seek the truth and report it thoroughly. Many of these also places are also businesses and they have to look at what's going to draw eyeballs and, and get clicks on their stories and knowing that the pandemic is the story right now and certainly anything that the president says is news makes a lot of sense, obviously, that they continue to put the the supermajority of their coverage on that and, of course, on the president's handling of it, especially as it relates to the, the 2020 election. I want to add in a quick counterpoint there. While the coronavirus uh, pandemic is the story and it's going to remain the story, as we're starting to see states reopen, as we're starting to see uh, the the infection rate and the number of deaths start to peak and reach their, their downswing, there's an opportunity now for the Trump administration and for President Trump himself and his campaign to demonstrate that he's not only a one-issue president. He's not solely focused on coronavirus because there's a lot of other aspects and there's a lot of other issues going on within our country, whether it is the economy, whether it is other social programs or infrastructure and manufacturing, that as he's now saying, we have gone, gotten past the peak, we've gotten past the worst of it. Now, he can show himself as leading other industries and leading other uh, sec segments of the country. I think that's an opportunity to just demonstrate that he's not solely focused, similar to what you said, Noah, that he should be showing that he's doing other things. To This is the opportunity to demonstrate that he's, he's focused on a wide variety of topics. And try to reframe himself as somebody who, instead of kind of dealing with the fallout of something and trying to mitigate disaster, can then be seen as a leader and somebody who is leading a resurgence of the American economy and, and American industry that's that has been crippled in, in some ways by this. I think that's certainly you know a very valid point there, Dan. I 
am interested to see where this goes because I think as Dr. Fauci was talking about that we are going to need at least double the testing that we have now just as a baseline for starting to reopen the economy in some places like Georgia are starting to do that, like Texas, as you said, Jenny, as well. So there are places that are starting to take this these first steps. I am very nervous about how this is going to happen because we don't know with the with the lack of the testing that we have about the new infections that are happening and how this is going to spread to other people and whether we're going too fast too soon. We're seeing that a vaccine won't be available again at least, you know, until 2021 and all of these different treatments and that you know CDC is saying that we might have, you know, kind of this winter a flu and coronavirus one two punch in the winter, something that you know, this is going to be around for a long time. It's not going away anytime soon, but hopefully we are able to get people back to work perhaps in a way that is safe and productive in ways that people can continue to earn an income and uh, put food on the table for their families and also keep a roof over their heads. So it's certainly something that we want for them. I want to pivot now speaking about the economy and the resurgence, different things like that. One of our uplifting stories of the week came to us from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. There is a steakhouse there called the Colonial Steakhouse, and a person left their entire stimulus check, all $1,200 of it, as a tip for the restaurant. And the manager said that uh, she and the uh, staff at the restaurant just started kind of breaking down into tears how much it meant because of, of what this is going to allow them to do. They've been operating, I think, with four employees three times a week. And so it's just absolutely amazing that somebody from, again, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, did this as as an incredible gesture and leaving their entire stimulus check as a tip. Our second uplifting story of the week, it just seems like we are having more more stories than we know what to do with in terms of good news, which is, which is wonderful. Uh, Publix announced a new initiative to purchase fresh produce and milk to assist farmers impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. They will donating these products directly to Feeding America member food banks, and it is expected to result in more than 150,000 pounds of produce and 43,500 gallons of milk donated to Feeding America food banks during, and that is, again, just the first seven days, and this is expected to run for several weeks. So this is going to support Florida produce farmers, southeastern dairy farmers, and growing number of families looking to feed in America for fresh fruits, vegetables, and milk during the pandemic. So always great to see, again, wonderful things happening both on kind of the individual side, but also companies seeing that they have a role to play within this pandemic and that they can help out their communities. Uh, Want to start and go into then again, final thoughts for the week that was and the week to come. Jenny Taylor, we'll start with you. Oh gosh. Um, well, I think we're moving um, in a forward path and it looks like the administration is hopeful that things will start to feel more normal um, around Memorial Day weekend. So I am looking forward to that and hopefully um, a few more states seeing trends on the downward and starting to implement phase one of reopening the economy. I think that will give Americans a lot of hope, especially those um, who have a lot of questions as to where um, their, you know, their next paycheck is going to come from. And waiting for the government to help them because there's still so many people who have not received 
um, aid from the federal government who have been promised that aid. Yeah, I certainly haven't gotten my stimulus check. Secretary Mnuchin, get at me, man. Come on. What's go- what's going on? I certainly don't don't think that that Memorial Day might be that that kind of sense of normalcy, but I certainly hope for it. I certainly hope that 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 is the case. I think we all, you know, want to return to at least some sense of normalcy, but I think without testing and without more certainty, I think we're kind of left in this space where some people are going to feel desperate to reopen or do these kinds of things and and, and engage in different ways and some people are going to continue to hold back and they're going to continue to protect themselves and their families by staying and working from home and doing different things and not going out and spending money at restaurants and all of those different things especially when we consider the recession that we're headed towards as a country because of this pandemic you know, I think people are going to really want to hang on to that money. So we'll, we'll see how that, uh, how that affects, obviously, some of these businesses. Even if they do open, hopefully they're able to get some kind of customer base in there to, uh, to support them as they try to get back on their feet. Dan Karish, your thoughts on the week that was and the week to come. You know, in the same line of thought, we're starting to see states reopen, uh, starting to see businesses reopen, trying to uh, reignite the economy. And I think, you know, over the past week, we've started – we started to see governors release plans. And we saw Larry Hogan of Maryland come up with a plan. We saw even the former New Jersey governor, Chris Christie, release a plan about using uh, the Defense Production Act to take over the supply chain, analyzing data uh, to, to determine when to reopen schools. And I think the reopening schools is the critical element uh, for a lot of the recovery and getting kids out of the house, getting them into summer camps or schools so that parents can go back to work. You know, parents can't work while their uh, kids frequently are at home. I think moving forward, something that will be interesting to see is which leaders come up with plans that are then disseminated throughout other states? Is there a particular governor whose plan uh, demonstrates the the most thought-out leadership and which kind of new next generation of gubernatorial leaders emerge? It's very interesting to think about. I want to pose this question to you all before we, before we end. The next time we talk will be in the month of May. Is this the longest month? that you have ever experienced in in your lives, Dan Karish? I mean, this seems like it's dragged on, I think, for for so long. I believe Savannah Guthrie made a joke on on the Today Show where she said this is the 45th day of April, something like that. You know, how how has this been in terms of of how we perceive time? Is it maybe just because we've all kind of been at home that it maybe seems longer and and engaging in this new normal that we're going to have to do for you know, almost definitely at least another month, probably longer. Yeah, it's definitely been an, an uprooting experience uh, in many aspects. And I think the psychological aspect of it, whether it's, you know, the mental health uh, aspects associated with time or with exercise and eating, and just being around your family uh, for so long, I think that's something that the the aftershock and the effects of it will have to be studied and, and monitored very closely. But it's at the same time, it's still a tremendous I, I try to think positively that it's a tremendous opportunity to learn a new skill, to spend time with uh, more time on, on FaceTime with, with my family and to try to grow in different ways that, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily grown by focusing solely on my commute and, you know, going to work and coming home. Definitely something that I know a lot of people can learn from, you know, whether it's a podcaster signing up for a course on, uh, I know, like Coursera or things like that. Obviously, if, if you're going to listen to a podcast, well, hopefully you're listening to this one as well as others. But Jenny, you know, for you, uh, you know, what has this month been like for you, obviously, with, with going back home to Houston and all of these other, you know, changes that you're, you're being uh, kind of away from home? I feel very blessed to be here. And I think that 
Um, it's very hard for people who are living in places like New York and DC and small apartments. It can get really, um, it can get to you and it can get to your mental health. And I agree with Dan because I think that the long-term effects of this, um, if people are not physically moving as much in one part of it, um, you know, I, I think that's going to have long-term, um, you know, consequences on people's health. I think we have to remember to like actually move as much as we did, which we can, thank God, you know, you can go outside and you can go for a walk still. And, um, you know, there's so many different ways to exercise now online. There's so many apps and there's so many live streams on Facebook that anyone can access if they have a computer. So, um, it's important to make sure that you're doing that because, um, those kinds of things are helpful in, in, immunity and in mental health and it's very important so personally I feel very uh, grateful and you know and I'm definitely not um, at all taking for granted the privilege that I have right now wonderful attitudes from from both of you Jenny Tayer and Dan Karish thank you both for joining us again here on polite politics and no need to offer thank you so much for listening we'll catch you next time